Disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This is kind of a great time to be a journalist. I mean, we're dealing with the fake news phenomenon. We're dealing with the Facebooks and the Googles who are kind of aggregating and curating and disrupting business models. But I've never felt more of a competitive pressure from the number of institutions, new, old, big, small, that are churning out really high quality content. You know, that'll shake out, I think. But right now, I actually think this is a great time to be in this business. Last year, the venerable Harvard Business Review announced plans to disrupt itself cutting its print magazine frequency down to six issues from 10 and doubling down on the variety and quality of multimedia content it put behind a higher paywall. All of which is really paying off. The HBR just achieved the highest paid circulation in its 95 year history. Question is, what should the struggling publishing world learn from this reinvention? Do stay with us. This week's episode is made possible by our friends at Elwood Thompson's. I've told you time and again, this is the best market in Virginia, the nicest people, the freshest food, the best ethos of food service and grocerying and and meeting people and humanity and real local RVA. I'm just so breathless about it. You must try Chef Jeffrey's sushi and definitely tell him I said konnichiwa. You must try Indian Wednesdays. You must try wine at the beat, uh, the gorgeous new uh, bar that has evening activities and happy hours and brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. And follow them at elwoodthompsons.com and see them at the top of Carytown at the corner of Elwoods and Thompsons. Full disclosure, joining us from Boston, Mass. I imagine you're not on the Cambridge side of the river, right? Uh, no, I'm not. We're uh, we're actually in beautiful downtown Brighton, Mass. Brighton, Mass is Adi Ignatius, editor in chief of the Harvard Business Review, which caught my eye last week. You guys have achieved your highest paid circulation in your 95 year history. That's not supposed to happen amid the death of business publications and journalism and 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 the mass die off we're seeing across the board. How are you? Uh, I'm fine. Glad to be here. So tell me how that happened in that last year, the big, the big headline thing was, was Harvard Business Review is reducing its print circulation. And you have to make some wrenching decisions, kind of fish or cut bait. Uh, what do we dedicate to online kind of feature capability, podcast capability? Uh, it seemed like a period of retrenchment. And then suddenly everybody's talking about this this week. Well, we never saw it as retrenchment. I mean, we went from 10 print issues a year down to six. But if you look at the print issues, they're really, I mean, this is still the crown jewel in everything that we do. And the, you know, the six issues a year now, you know, each issue is, is bigger, is thicker, is filled with more stuff. We're using better quality paper, you know, so we're really trying to communicate that this is, this is, you know, the, the, the highest level thing that we do. But at the same time, as we reduce the print issues, we're just churning out a lot more digital content. So we never felt it was retrenchment. We've actually added staff, not cut staff. It's just sort of following our um, consumer habits, our consumers' habits to to produce more content that's digital, that's, you know, how they want it, the way they want it. Adi, there's such paucity of, of evidence that people are willing to pay uh, for uh, digital journalism. I mean, you see, uh, they are territorial about their Netflix logins, whether or not they're sharing them. They are very specific about Spotify, uh, Amazon Prime. You see bundles, uh, really quality TV. Uh, that's that's entertainment kind of writ large. The New York Times recently had great numbers, but you're seeing uh, the majority case uh, across the board is that people still uh, rely on the old advertising cross-subsidy. What makes your publication 
uh, so different? Is it largely an expense account publication or other people paying for it? Do they really see value in paying for the digital? Well, I mean, we're lucky. As you say, we have a 95-year history. You know, Harvard Business Review has, over the years, delivered quality, delivered value to. So, we're, you know, we're building on that. Um, I think, you know, our promise, the way we're different is we, we, you know, what we publish is meant to kind of help people run their companies and institutions better, help people manage their careers better. So so there's a, a sense of value that people are willing to pay even, a, you know, a, a a premium price. We're actually in the middle of this circulation increase. We actually lifted our, our newsstand price by a dollar an issue in that. So we're, you know, we're trying to, we've, we've increased circulation and we're actually pushing the, you know, the price up, you know, is an expense account thing, I guess for some people, but that, but that's true for a lot of publications. I mean, it's, it's, I think the test is, are people using it and reading it or not? You know, if you're, if your subscription stacks up unread, at a certain point, you're going to say, well, this is ridiculous and, and cancel it. So we're just trying to stay vital for people, whether it's via print or via the various things that we do online so that they say, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to subscribe to this and to renew that subscription. So alongside you, you guys top 300,000 in terms of paid circulation, which was a, a 10% gain over six months, you guys get an average of six and a half million unique visitors each month. Uh, to hbr.org, and you have more than 11 million social media followers. I mean, you, you see your your Twitter cloud out there. I've, I've had Harvard Business Review editors on talking about their books, and it just has this, this huge following. The brand uh, resonates across the board. What I'm curious about is how you compete against that enormous uh, deluge of, of some of it great quality, some of it really low quality and platitudinous LinkedIn career content. I mean, it's, it's just all over the place and anybody can just go and self-publish up there. And after all, it's now owned by Microsoft and they can afford to flood the plane with all that content. And, and here you guys are uh, convincing people to still pay for yours. I guess I'd say raw numbers aren't everything. You know, when I worked at Time Magazine, we had 4 million subscribers and that was a great number. You know, I never really met any of them. I never, you never felt you had a, a, a connection. Um, where, you know, Harvard Business Review, you know, the people, it's 300,000. That's, a, that's a, a much smaller number, but that's, a, that's sort of where you want to be. I mean, I, I think you want to be a niche where you have a kind of fanboy base that really, really cares about what you're publishing. It's really, um, you know, follows it and, you know, they're going to be uh, super fans who talk about it to other people. You know, LinkedIn is the same way. You know, they're big numbers. You can self-publish. Some of it's fine, um, but, you know, I think we've, been able to continue to convince people that, you know, they need to come to HBR to find really the latest thinking, the latest research, the latest ideas that can really help their companies, help their careers. Now, what about advertising? It's still uh, some slice of, of the overall revenue pie and, and how you guys make a living, but decreasingly so, I imagine. Um, are you finding that there's a willingness to pay uh, to the extent that you did hone in and, and focus on uh, a more enthusiastic base uh, that is paying after all, that that might counterintuitively be more valuable to advertisers? Uh, it's, it's absolutely right. Now, print advertising, of course, dec has declined significantly for us, as it has for everyone. But yeah, so we have, you know, because we have the audience we have, for example, we do, you know, maybe a dozen times a year, something called an insight center online, where we will focus on a specific topic and roll out, you know, one digital piece a day for maybe as long as a month. So it, you know, it's narrow, it's targeted, but um, the CPMs that advertisers pay are far, far higher than most people are getting because they, they get the readership, they get the click-throughs, they get people, you know, kind of really interested in the, 
both the content and the, the advertising content. Um, and then we've shifted, you know, a lot of our ad revenue now comes from new places. I mean, like webinars, you know, I did a, a talk with uh, Andrew Ng, who's sort of the guy on AI out in San Francisco a couple of weeks ago. We had maybe 350 people watching live and then maybe 3000 people who were, um, you know, watching uh, a kind of live webcast and that was sponsored by Google cloud and they, you know, they pay a decent amount of money to be part of that experience. So, you know, you just have to find as, as print and, and, you know, banners and those things aren't affected as effective. You know, you just need to look for new ways to get ad revenue. Hmm. Adi, uh, you and I were introduced when I was at business school. It was the summer of 2004. And I was paradoxically, I was looking to get back into journalism as a, as a better business journalist. And, and I believe we met at Time Magazine. And you very frankly told me, hold out your hand. And you put that copy of Time on my hand and it was so light. And you said, look, there's just no evidence of this getting thicker. Um, I know I'm taking you on a bit of a detour here, but it blows my mind the extent to which uh, that industry has been um, violently disrupted. It would have been great news if you had told me, let's say 15 years ago, that Time Magazine, um, US News and World Report is largely going to disappear. It's going to become a specialty monthly type you know, uh, focused interest magazine. Newsweek is going to uh, have repeated brushes with death. Uh, you would think that Time Magazine, uh, the leader in that category, would then, in, in any other competitive conversation, it would it would capture all of the rents. It would pounce on uh, the disruption. It would be the last man standing. But in fact, you see across the board, magazines are are thinning out and, and reducing frequency and, and increasingly dying out. Yeah, I, look, I think it's tough to be a big circulation general interest publication right now. I, I, you know, it, it's tough. And, you know, Time has done a lot of things, a lot of innovative things. They're fighting a good battle. It, it, it's really tough. I mean, that's what I was saying. I, I would rather be Harvard Business Review with a sort of, you know, clear but narrower focus with a 300,000 circ than, you know, one of those giants with uh, sort of millions and millions and millions. You know, that said, this is kind of a great time to be a journalist. I mean, I do think... I mean, we're dealing with a fake news phenomenon. We're dealing with, um, you know, the big, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles who are kind of aggregating and curating and, and disrupting business models. But, you know, in terms of just, uh, I mean, I, I've never felt more of a kind of competitive pressure from the, the number of institutions, new, old, big, small, that are churning out, you know, really high quality content. And it's, you know, that'll shake out, I think. But right now, I actually think this is a great time to be in this business. Is there any evidence that people are getting paid for it? I mean, do you have a virtual uh, global bureau system? If you want a, a stringer in Shanghai or something, do you have the, the wherewithal to kind of send people over? Well, for us, I mean, you know, most of the people who write for us are either, you know, CEOs of, of big companies or um, academics or consultants. And to be honest, you know, the, we you know, they don't care about being remunerated for a piece in HBR. Having a piece in HBR just leads to clear, tangible benefits, you know, uh, consulting gigs, higher speaking fees, whatever. So now when we engage journalists, yeah, we pay, we pay very competitive rates. I mean, I, I really, I don't like what's happened to, to journalists, you know, being asked or forced to, to write or to blog for, for nothing. That's, that's tough. I mean, I, I used to give advice to journalists I, to do what I did, which was to go overseas as a young journalist. And, you know, English language skill, writing and editing skill is still, um, 
you know, it, it's a, it's a valued commodity and, and, you know, and I, I still, I still believe in that. It's a little tougher now. My, my pep talk is a little bit measured as, as everything changes, but I do think there's great opportunity in that good journalism and good journalists will, you know, continue to be something very important for society. I'd like to ask you more about that. As you know, we increasingly get get asked. It's assumed that we're going to work for exposure. That the uh, the idea is that the payoff it's a it's a call option for something later on. But that exposure um, it used to get you a gig. It used to get you a speaking gig. It used to get you uh, maybe a, a, a commission for a three four thousand word piece in covering travel. But that payoff is is increasingly elusive. Um, there are very few players out there because of the fact that so many people, their publicists, their flags, the CEOs are willing to write as a kind of a loss leading enterprise. Um, do you see where I'm getting at? It's kind of crowded out uh, journalists writ large. I I think it's tough. I mean, I I I don't think I would have had the um, the backbone to you know be an independent and just try to you know, build my name. And so I always worked for institutions. I worked for Wall Street Journal for 13 years. I worked for Time Inc., Time Magazine for, for 13 years. And, you know, there there are still institutions that, that hire and nurture and train and value the skills that, that journalists, young and old, bring. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a, there are fewer opportunities. They're there. Um, you know, then there is this whole generation of people who want to be self-employed, who want to be you know, a little bit artistic and create film and, and write articles and, you know, more power to them. I, 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 I couldn't do that. I see people, including some of my children doing that. And, you know, let's see how it plays out. They're, they're, you know, they're struggling, but trying to figure out, you know, where their place is in this crazy new constellation. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Adi Ignatius, veteran of, of uh, Time, Inc. Um, I saw him at Time Magazine. He was at the Wall Street Journal, as you just explained, for a long time. And he's now at Harvard Business Review, uh, which is uh, thriving and has a hand in uh, various multimedia buckets. Talk to me about podcasting. Uh, that's everywhere. I am, after all, in a public radio environment. And it used to be that you had to go kiss the ring of your public radio affiliate, um, hope that you could stick around long enough to get a, a late night, you know, hosting, co-hosting, substitute hosting gig. And maybe after six or seven years, they'd let you have your own gig. Um, now, as you know, uh, the price of equipment has dropped. Uh, the, the, the ability to kind of carry it on iTunes, internet radio is ubiquitous. Everybody has suddenly become a radio host. Yeah, well, congratulations. Um, you've done well. <laughs> uh, you know, so so we for years we've had a we've had what we call an idea cast, and they tend to be pretty conventional interviews like this one on one, and they've done really well for us. And Sarah Green Carmichael tends to host them. And in some ways, she is the most recognizable oh, person, yeah. or or certainly voice at at Harvard Business Review. We're we're in the process of of creating some new programming as well. You know, we're we're picking up on the signals and catching the bug and want to do some more sophisticated programming. Um, you know, that's more like a, a show than, than merely, uh, sort of Q and a. So we'll have something I hope we can roll out in the next few months. I mean, it's great. I, I listen to podcasts. Everybody seems to. So, uh, what else, what else are some of the other interesting bells and whistles? I mean, I just want to get an idea for this as a practitioner, as a person who used to be an editor at a mass market magazine. It is a, it is a case. I hate to throw out the cliche, uh, when I have HBR on, but innovate or die. Um, so one of the things we're really excited about, so, you know, we're trying to figure out, all right, so we've gone from 10 print issues to six and, um, you know, eventually more and more we need to think about, okay, what is the all digital 
expression of Harvard Business Review. I'm not, we're not on the verge of that, but it sort of seems like that may be the path we're on. So we decided to, to really try to invent that. And we created something we call the big idea, which is more than just, okay, a big honking HBR article only on digital. We decided to approach it more as programming. So we will take a topic and, and this is all digital. None of this is in print. It could be, but it's not at this point. Um, so the most recent one we did was on artificial intelligence, trying to separate, you know, myth and reality and really tell businesses, not just tech businesses, what they need to know about AI right now. So it opened with a big article by a couple of you know, experts at MIT. And then over the course of a week, we rolled out kind of complementary content that took advantage of the multiple platforms we have. Um, you know, there was a, the, an interview with Facebook's head of AI. We did a, uh, a video where we engaged uh, Watson's IBM to try to come up with sort of crazy new recipes because they've downloaded every recipe book in the world. And then we had an expert, you know, famous chef and then a amateur chef try to deal with what Watson spat out. So, so that was meant to show how both experts and lay people will deal with artificial intelligence going forward. And it, it all ended with the thing I mentioned before, which was an interview with Andrew Ng, um, of Stanford, um, which was a, a live event that was that was live streamed. Anyway, so a month before we run these things, we ask readers, you know, are you interested in this topic? If so, give us your email and we'll we'll you know keep you informed. So immediately you get you know thousands and thousands of people who are who are signed up to this topic, and you're really engaging them on a specific topic, and that's a that's a group that you can connect with later, a community you can connect with later on sort of relevant relevant topics. Um, so, you know, another challenge was to get traditional authors who valued being in print more than being digital to get them acclimated to the idea that digital what you know, what you and I know, which is digital has greater impact, you know, greater reach. And you can measure the impact immediately. And it's worked that we have some of our most valued authors who are saying, yeah, I don't want print. I want the big idea. Cause I get that you're, th this is a chance for ideas to really have impact. So but why is it, why is it, especially that you see the purse string holders or if, when you have to deal with publicists that they invariably ask, but is it going to be in print? Uh, there's still that bias. There's still that, well, the ultimate vindication, if I'm getting a retainer uh, by an executive is that the bounty, the spoils is I have to show her or him that issue, that glossy cover. Um, digital is more ephemeral. It's fleeting. Yeah. I, I think it's just a holdover. Um I mean, it is true, print is limited. We only have six issues with a certain number of pages. So in a sense, it is scarcer. But uh, what I try to tell people is, yeah, but the reach and impact is, is often going to be greater. Look, I, the combination is the killer. And, and so for our consumers, our subscribers, you know, people who, who, who connect with HBR in print and digital both, I mean, that's where the gold is. These are people who really love the brand, who who subscribe and renew and buy products and all that. So, you know, I, I guess I kind of wish that the you know the publicists and the authors got that you, you really want both, and uh, and if you can't get both, that digital is the way to really kind of reach the most people possible. 
Adi, walk me through the decision last year to uh, bring down the number of issues and to increase the quality of the paper stock, all of that. It's a, uh, it, because it, it, it does, at, at a headline level, it telegraphs something in the world. I'm thinking back to Fortune magazine, which I've loved uh, for, you know, I've been reading for 20, 25 years. I've always wanted to work there. I never ended up working there. Uh, but when they brought down the frequency, it was a biweekly. And, and I don't know, you know, six, seven years ago now when it's, published it it felt like a punch to the gut uh to the the subscribers who were out there who were like wow i i follow this i expect it it's part of kind of my my circadian reading rhythm and um if you're going to do that you have to give me something else if you're going to take that away uh you know you you need to give me more digital capability you need to have events um walk me through the conversation and and, and the perils and the opportunity of doing that i mean the reason you you decrease the reason we decrease you know, print circulation was two reasons. You know, one is the decline in advertising. That's the sort of, you know, the boring, you know, unhappy reason. But the other is really the shift in how people want to engage with us. And, you know, it, it it's happening. People are reading long form, you know, complex, difficult HBR articles on their phones. I mean, that is just a, a transition that's happening. Um, but then there's this question of how do you do it? So, you know, there are certain magazines that have decreased um, their their print circulation and ended up using terrible paper. And, you know, you end up with a sort of little thin pamphlet and you just feel like the, the editors and publishers, they don't even believe this product has any value and they want us to continue to subscribe to it. We had a very different take, which is, as I said before, the print magazine is the crown jewel of what we do. It is the most premium ex- expression of what we do. It's still how a huge number of our subscribers want to consume what we do. So we wanted to, uh, you know, adjust the number of print issues to what made sense in terms of market conditions. And it seemed like in terms of reader preferences, but make it really clear that this is, this is a valuable thing. This is, you know, we're not, we're not running from print. We're not putting out a, a substandard product that this is, we get that this is a very important part of the mix, but it's, but it's only a part of the mix. How are you guys going to get the younger, the, the enfant terribles to, to pay up? I mean, the people that are in business schools, that are uh, managers, that are uh, millennials, that believe in self-driving cars and grapefruit lacrosse and, and every other trope out there and Netflix and chill. Um, how do you convince them to come and pay for something like this when maybe they've just not been used to ever doing that? Well, good question. So we're experimenting with one product. Um, it's called HBR Ascend, and it is only in... India right now. So we're just, we're targeting, you know, exactly that cohort in India, you know, sort of millennials who are into business or young managers or something like that. And so we're trying to come up with content that is, that is, you know, relevant and accessible in different ways to, to that group. Um, you know, at this point it is more of a kind of, you know, advertising, uh, supported model, but, but mostly through this experiment, we want to learn about what content works and what content doesn't, and then see if we can build out things that, you know, that people might actually be willing to to pay for. Um, yeah. What about Slack? Um, so yeah, so we we are experimenting with a couple of bots. We have a we have a bot on Slack that's meant to kind of really allow people to sort of engage as deeply as they want with us in sort of following topics that are you know how do I deal with a tough colleague, how do I ask my boss for a raise, you know, topics like that. And they can just engage with the bot and go deeper and deeper and deeper on that or other topics as they want. Um, we're going to launch a Facebook bot soon too, that will, um, 
you know, kind of summarize uh, the latest of what we're doing and again, allow people to go deeper and deeper. So these are, these are just engagement tools to try to connect with, with people, you know, many of them younger or many of them new to HBR at least, and then kind of see what the interaction is and see what that means in terms of, of how we go forward. Um, what, could you could you explain that how a bot works? Is it kind of like Clippy in the old uh, <laughs> Microsoft <laughs> Office thing? Well, I was most looking to get rid of Clippy, and I think they finally euthanized the poor. Thing, I think uh, they. I love Clippy. Ago. Every time I was like, "Oh my god, Clippy's <laughs> back!" Everybody, Clippy's back. Um, yeah. So um, so it's it's sort of there. You can subscribe to it. So let's say on Slack on Slack, you can subscribe to it, and you know it's sort of there as a reference when you. So we're not we're not. We're not like Clippy where we pop up and go, Ahem, you know, please use this service, but we're just there. And then people engage without, it's all sort of preloaded. We're not, you know, there's no human on the other side. They're just engaging with the content and can, you know, the way we've set it up can go deeper and deeper, um, you know, through the logic tree or whatever as they, as, as they want to get more information. So it's just, a, you know, it's another way. I mean, look, that's the, that's the secret with HBR. Everybody assumes that, initially that HBR isn't for them, that it's just too out there, too smart or boring or something. And the trick is to just get people engaged with the brand and, and then to hopefully see them be surprised and realize, oh, this is actually about my life. This is about how businesses work. It's about how people interact. And this is so, you know, so the bots to me are just another way to kind of create those initial connections that hopefully will lead to people coming to us all the time and people subscribing and buying what we produce and all that. Full disclosure, we are talking to Adi Ignatius. He is the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review. He joins us from uh, Brighton, Mass, across the river uh, from uh, Harvard uh, University, uh, closer to the business school. And you guys have pretty great Thai food out there, I remember, and Brazilian food. Um, that is, uh, what, what, is the, what is the connection exactly to the Harvard Business School? Could you, could you kind of tease that out? I mean, do you, do you cross-pollinate with them? Do you do joint events? Um, how does that work? Well, the way it's set up, so we are 100% owned by Harvard Business School. Um, that said, they give us close to 100% independence, and that predated my coming here 10 years ago. Um, and really, I think they realized that for us to be credible, we need to be not just publisher of the best ideas that come out of Harvard Business School, but publisher of the most important ideas that come from anywhere. Um, and, you know, as long as we are successful, you know, any... The, the profit we make goes back to the school to finance its case study research. So as long as we're making our numbers, as long as we're not embarrassing the school, we continue to enjoy that that independence. Adi, that seems to be the, 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 the real model out there is that you need a backstop. If you look at the Boston Globe, if you look at um, the Atlantic Monthly, I know these are not analogous. These are not, you know, one-to-one apples-to-apples competitors with you, but increase, you know, Steve Jobs' widow agreed to to acquire that from, you know, its owner in a few years. Not only do you have to innovate, but you need to be given uh, the leash and the, the funding in the meantime to be able to to fail up and down. Well, no, hang on. So we, we are not subsidized in any way whatsoever by the school. Hmm. Um, you know, we, we make a, you know, a decent surplus and that goes back to the school. So they actually depend on us for, you know, for their, I know, I know, but I want you, I want you to take me elsewhere in this. And I know I keep going back and forth in your realm and and outside of that, but it seems like there's a continued die off of, of quality. Let's say 
business journalism, general interest journalism. And unless you have that backstop there, I mean, the, the, the biggest example that comes to mind is Jeff Bezos, now the richest man in the world, uh, running the Washington Post. I mean, from afar. Uh, but you have to know in the back of your mind that you're, you're not going to be judged on what quarterly earnings and, uh, um, circulation. I mean, even if the New York Times posts amazing, uh, digital subscriber gains, it's still hemorrhaging print advertising. It's, it's, uh, mother's milk. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, you know, Bezos has taken the company private, so we don't really know anything. You know, I think the, the only thing that they release are their, um, you know, digital, um, uniques or, you know, a few d details like that, but we don't really know how the business is doing. You do sort of sense that they're doing something right though. And part of it is, is what a lot of people are doing, which is, um, you know, very cheap short-term or introductory offers. I mean, mm. the Washington Post is interesting right now because they, they decided to put every single article they had on Facebook, on, you know, Facebook instant articles on the Facebook server. And it was just, it was a good experience to get people used to the Washington Post. Now you have this incredible moment with the Trump administration and the response to it where the Post seems to, and New York Times too, but we're talking about the Post, they seem to break a story or breaking analysis several times a day. And where you were accustomed to getting all of that for free on Facebook and instantly loading, now suddenly you hit that wall and they're asking you to pay. And they're asking you to pay maybe not that much for an introductory or short-term subscription. So, you know, I don't know the figures. Anecdotally, I know lots and lots and lots of people who've said, I'm hooked on the post now and I need to buy. So, you know, so yes, the, the Bezos model on the one hand is the... Um, guy with billions of dollars who's willing to subsidize, but I don't think that's his long-term plan for the post. I think he's trying to figure out ways. He certainly already made it from having a kind of local regional perspective to having, you know, more of a national perspective than it ever had. And again, anecdotally, it seems to be paying off. So, you know, I think guys like that maybe can figure out models that are a little less grim than the, what you were describing. Adi, give me give me an epiphany or two or three on uh, social media. What it does for you, what it doesn't do for you, where where you draw the line. I mean, if one of your younger, uh, you know, marketing people comes to you and says, "We really need to get on Snap." I mean, that's where the traffic's going to be headed. That's where you're going to capture mind share. Um, you see LinkedIn. I'm I'm sure it's very fruitful for you. Facebook. You you have no choice. I mean, that's it's like a whole parallel internet. What works? What doesn't work? Uh, what are your predictions? Well, all of this stuff works for traffic, certainly. Um, I think there are people who, um, I, you know, I, I, look, I think it's, 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 it's something of a badge for people to, to like Harvard Business Review, to be part of any community that we create. Um, and I don't mean that, you know, falsely, cynically, that, you know, when we set up communities on social media, subscriber-only communities where people can engage with one another, that's really valuable. I mean, we found that as long as people think we're really curating this, that the people on the other side are actually subscribers to, to HBR, then suddenly the, this, this community wants to interact not just with us, but, but with themselves. So that, that is really valuable, that, that social gives us a chance to, to get these people to connect, and it kind of deepens their, um, their interest in, in what we're publishing and their, their connection with the brand. Um, you know, the question is whether this, how this social media becomes a funnel for our business. You know, it, it certainly drives traffic. It certainly um, helps the impact of ideas. But, you know, ultimately it needs to help our business model. And, 
you know, so we we're we're trying to be very active on social, but also you know tightening some tightening the paywall. I mean, um, we you know our top fifty articles. So so let me go back. The archive, the HBR archive, is probably more important to us as a brand than to any other publication. You know, articles that are twenty, thirty years old are are very valuable. People buy reprints. They they want to get them online, and so we've tightened that up. And our top fifty articles are not available except to subscribers. They're not even available, you know, when you first, uh, you know, when you haven't hit the limit on the paywall. So I think you have to manage, you have to manage sort of social, you have to manage the paywall, you have to manage what is subscriber only and, and keep experimenting and, until you get that, that balance right. Mm. Adi, in the few minutes we have left, I, I want to go back to uh, an observation that the late David Carr of the New York Times made and that um, this golden age of content broadly, I mean, it's amazing, uh, but it's also uh, really frustrating to him that all of his his colleagues back then were saying, you really need to watch this. You really need to read this uh, 40,000 word treatise on Scientology in the New Yorker. And you just see this stuff stacking and stacking and stacking up as Netflix, as Reed Hastings will tell you, there are only so many hours in the day. Um, and so I wonder when you talk about the login, when you talk about those 50 premium articles and, and the fact that, you know, Washington Post is so indispensable, are we going to hit up against login fatigue and platform fatigue? And everybody wants you to pay. You saw this news, uh, Disney and Netflix, Disney wants to start its own streaming thing. And I know I'm commingling journalism and entertainment and various things. But in the end, I'm thinking about it in terms of my media consumption budget. And and it seems like uh, the bundle is important to some people like Amazon and increasingly to, to media parents. They want you having your own login and paying them directly. Yeah, I mean, I, I worry about the inability of people to remember where they read that good piece. I mean, that that's one problem with the distribution platforms. If it's all on Facebook or it's all on Twitter and you read it, yeah, you can't really remember, was that Harvard Business Review? Was that Fortune? Was that something else? It surprised me that some of these um, companies that have tried to be the quote-unquote Spotify of news haven't succeeded more than they have. You know, Blendle is one, you know, Inkle is another, where um, you can pay you know, hopefully the entire universe is out there. You can pay by the article. The editors of these platforms push out their favorite articles every day. You can subscribe a sort of flat rate that's not too much that gives you access to everything. That seems to me to be a pretty good deal. Um, it's just, you know, we started with this internet is free, content is free thing that it's just taken, you know, years and years and years to to move off. So, um, I guess I still believe that a, 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 that some sort of model like that can work and will work, but it's it surprised me it's taken so long. Hmm. You have the mic to yourself for the final few minutes. Uh, Open ended. Tell me what you want to talk about. Uh, what what's on your radar? What do you think is getting short shrifted? What should we cover for a future show? Well, I mean, one of the interesting challenges that every publisher, every editor faces now is, you know, what are you in the age of Donald Trump and you know, for us, we sort of thought, well, we're not overtly political. And you know, if we write something, it will please half our audience and, and displease the other half. It's sort of not what we do. But, I, you know, I was sort of thinking if, if 10 years from now you thought, wow, that was a really interesting period in American history. I wonder what HBR wrote about it. And if the answer was nothing, that would seem to be a real dereliction of duty and a, you know, a, a missed opportunity for our platform. So, 
you know, we sort of decided there's certain fundamental issues. You know, Harvard Business Review is not about making a lot of money. It's about building kind of long-term um, sustainable enterprises that are, that are run well. So our, some of these values, sustainability, long-termism, diversity, have always been at our core and are suddenly almost controversial because, you know, the administration is at war with, with these ideals in one way or the other. So we've just started, and we're going to launch actually this coming week, something called the Future Economy Project, where we've partnered with um, about a dozen of the you know, world's leading CEOs who are recognized for driving a kind of long-term, you know, sustainable, climate-friendly agenda, um, who are kind of on board with this to really um, identify this as, you know, despite whatever's happening in Washington, identify this as an absolute um, top priority. And we're going to end up with a sort of list of principles that will help other companies that maybe haven't made that commitment and aren't sure how to make that commitment when the federal government says it's not important to really, you know, help companies figure out how to be long-term sustainable companies and how to begin to operationalize all of that in what they do. So, you know, it's the fundamental question. What do you want to be in this sort of era of turmoil uh, and, and how can you be sort of constructive? And that's, that's where we've ended up. Hmm. Finally, Adi, in the era of term, turmoil, we are on the 10th anniversary of the kind of the onset of this this financial calamity, uh, the, the worst uh, financial disaster of our lifetimes. Um, and while we're told by the Bureau of Labor Statistics that unemployment is is really back down, you see the stock market is near all time highs. Inflation is is under control. Um, you talk to people out there from a motivation perspective. A lot of people had to hang on to jobs they have not loved. Um, actually resented for a long time. And motivation is becoming a real concern. And something fundamentally has changed. And you guys have covered it in your pages where you don't feel like you have the mobility in the past, that that increasingly the employer has uh, uh, the overwhelming share of, of clout. You should just be grateful for any job. Is there going to be a reckoning? Is there going to be a turnaround in that? It's not sustainable. You're absolutely right. It's not sustainable. And... Um, but nor do I see a, you know, a kind of quick, easy fix. Um, you know, we attack that at a, you know, in two different ways. So for people who are lucky enough to have, have jobs and have, you know, decent jobs, you know, there's still that sort of um, huge percentages, you know, 80% more of people who say, yeah, they don't really love their jobs. They're not really motivated in their jobs. So, you know, we write a lot about how companies can, Kind of engage people, you know, including encouraging them to be rebels, you know, what we've termed rebel talent, um, where it's okay, you know, you have to create an environment where it's okay for people to be themselves, where it's okay for people to, to question authority, and that's not threatening to anybody. And that's so, so, so that's part of it. The other thing, though, is, is more fundamental. It's just, yeah, the stock market is fine. Corporations are fine. They're not creating good jobs. You know, you have this hollowing out of, of, of the workforce as companies become more efficient, whether it's through outsourcing or automation or whatever. So, so there's a big disconnect between the, the Wall Street economy and the real economy. And, you know, I, there aren't quick fixes. We did a piece that I hoped would be a game changer and I hope still will by Joe Bauer and Lynn Payne of Harvard Business School a couple issues ago that just said our understanding of CEO's role in terms of their relationship with shareholders is distorted, that there's this sense that, well, the CEO's role is to maximize shareholder value and anything else is secondary. And, 
even though people talk a different game at the end of the day, they, they still sort of pursue that path. And, and Bauer and Payne really tried to show why that is not only bad in terms of outcomes and helps, helps add to this inequality that you're sort of getting at, but it, it's really a misunderstanding of the law. And, you know, I really want that piece. We'll push it out again. Would love for that piece to change that dialogue. We just, you know, the idea that companies have to maximize the returns of, of shareholders who, you know, bought the stock yesterday and that that trumps other stakeholder interests is kind of crazy and it's not actually what the law requires. So maybe that's a place to start. Adi Ignatius, editor-in-chief of the Harvard Business Review. Uh, you are covering yourself in glory. Keep on rocking in the free world, good sir. Okay, thanks. Great to talk to you. Full disclosure, find us and love us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Hey, look, we're looking to up our frequency in 2018, so kick in and chip in at Patreon.com slash FullDRadio. Special thanks to Amy Poftak and Kurt Nickish at the Harvard Business Review. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. Next week.